am Citizen 44. I'd like to take this opportunity to wish my amazing, fantastic son, Sam, a happy 18th birthday on February 12th. Wow, 18. That is amazing. So glad to have you in my life, Sammy. Look forward to whatever fun, amazing, groovy, cool stuff you do. Love you. You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Aronsberg, live from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. On your faith, on your dreams, on your mind, on your health, yeah You gotta work, never tell, keep your head down, find what you love and excel, yeah Push and pull and repel any hate, go create what you want, feel compelled, yeah Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 103. Four years ago, on January 29th, 2018, I released my very first episode. My first guest was Suzanne Barraza, extraordinary friend and documentary filmmaker. Four years ago, when I was in Ashland, Oregon, sitting in my apartment on Main Street, I finally decided to pull out this little microphone that came with my iMac that I purchased as a replacement for my iMac that had crashed and burned. And the computer came with this little microphone. Anyway, I put the mic away for a couple of weeks, didn't really think about it, had been thinking about starting a podcast over the year, and lo and behold, 103 shows later, here I am, still doing it. I was able to talk to Suzanne while she was in the Dominican Republic with her husband and my dear friend, Lucky Doug Fergus, and uh, we recorded what would be a follow-up show. So the first part of the show is an edited version of show number one. And then following that is our most recent conversation, which happened just before Christmas. So very excited to still be here doing this from Saigon. And speaking of Saigon, we're in the last couple of days of the Lunar New Year holiday, Tet, T-E-T, which is the biggest holiday in Vietnam, celebrated for about two weeks Most businesses are closed. People go back to their hometowns in various provinces around Vietnam to be with family and enjoying life. I got nine days off. This is day number seven, and I will go back to work on Monday. It's been a fantastic holiday. I'm with this really lovely woman, Jin. I am so fortunate to have met her. Funny, 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 sweet, kind, generous, She's even picked up a lot of my manners of speech, which is very entertaining. Her English is pretty good, and she's learning more and more every day with me. I spent four days with her family in Vung Tau. Her family is about 35 kilometers from Vung Tau Beach. Both her parents are Buddhist monks, live very humbly, super sweet people, A few days into the trip, her two sisters from Saigon, older and younger sister, showed up. So a big family affair, did some traditional cooking of bontet, big banana leaves with rice and green bean inside, 
Typical Bontet has meat and other things in it, but they're, of course, vegetarians. The tradition of cooking the Bontet is getting a giant pot. You take these banana leaves wrapped in natural twine, like from the trees, and you build a fire and you cook them. These were cooked boiling for six hours. I helped her father build the fire. It's a ceremonial thing. Typically speaking, if you're going to keep them for a long time, you cook them for 22 hours. So you tend the fire constantly for 22 hours and replace the water that boils out. And what's left is this very sticky rice with delicious goodness in the middle. You unwrap the leaves, you take the natural twine and use that to cut off slices of it. And uh, her father was not feeling well that night, a little tired. So, uh, Jin and I stayed up and tended to the fire, and then uh, later he got up, and we put out the fire, dumped the water, took the bontet out, and uh, set it out to cool to eat for the next morning. So it was really fun to be part of this tradition, which I was actually last year, too, with Lean Ann's father. I didn't participate as much, but uh, this year I, I got to participate quite a bit, and it was Jin's first year preparing the bontet with her mother. So that was a cool experience, too, to be part of Jin's first experience of making the Bontet. They look like little bricks, kind of a round brick. Anyway, that was really an awesome part of my stay. Typically, people in Vietnam are very comfortable sleeping on the hard floor. I am not comfortable sleeping on a hard tile floor, so I slept in a hammock for three nights, which was super fun, and I got fairly restful sleep. And that was pretty much the routine. You get up, you eat, you lay in the hammock, you take a nap, you get up, you eat again, do some chores, do some sweeping, go for a walk, come home, eat, take a nap, eat, take a nap, eat, take a nap. Love the hammock. Kind of wish I had one inside my apartment. I did go out and about on the motorbike with Jin, met some other family members, after a few days, Jin and I took off on her motorbike and went to Vung Tau Beach for a couple of days and had a really wonderful time walking on the beach, eating good food. It was packed full of people on vacation enjoying their time off. I mean, packed, so busy, but really fun. And now I'm back as of yesterday. It's only about a two and a half hour motorbike ride from here to Vung Tau. Very simple, easy ride. My longest ride yet, and uh, yeah, all good. I have everything. The only thing I don't have with me are my children right now. Thankfully, fantastic technology that we're so privileged to have. I can stay in contact with them and keep those home fires burning. Just got back from having coffee with Harry over at Huami with Coffee Lady, and the weather's beautiful. The streets are still quiet here in Saigon. But busier than last year. Last year, this city became pretty much a ghost town. But because of the pandemic, travel is definitely way down from last year. Show number 103 with Suzanne Barraza. Here we go. That's a different spelling of the Basque name, B-A-R-R-A-Z-A, and, and I'm B-E-R-A-Z-A. Yep. So you're Basque. Uh, my dad is Basque. Spanish Basque. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
But you weren't Pyrenees. born in Spain. No, I was born in Jamaica. My dad was born in Spain. Yeah, his heritage is Basque. He says there are certain physical traits that come with it. Of course, the ears, the what nose. Are, what are the ears? I don't know. They're supposed to be large. Let me I, see. I, don't, I don't feel like mine are that large. Eh. Oh, and also we're supposed to have long intestines. Excuse me? Intestines have to have how do, you, how do you determine that? I don't know. I think my dad's just wanking on about stuff which he tends to do but supposedly we have long intestines and yeah. we have long fingers and toes and my dad says it's so you can climb the mountains they're sheep herders they right. had to have long toes as they tiptoed merrily up the mountain side with no shoes on with their sheep documentary filmmaker right i was told film is pretentious you know i have no preference to me they're kind of interchangeable i think for a while i was sort of on a film kick like oh real thing films real thing productions you know our company but then i was like ah a movie a film it almost feels like bag is a movie and and uranium drive-in is a film oh. one's like fun it's very kind of every man. It has a lot of mass appeal. And then Uranium Drive-In is just kind of like, uh, I mean, I love it, but it's a bit more of a chore. It's, you know, it's a little heavy. It's it's real people and their real shit that they're going through. And my film now is heavy too. And man, I am so ready to go back to comedy. What is your project now? The new one is called Massacre River. It's set in the Dominican Republic in Haiti. And I partly grew up in the Dominican Republic, so I, I really love the country. But they passed this absolute shit law near the end of 2013 where they overturned birthright citizenship. And it was really aimed at people of Haitian descent. Because they're just like, oh, there are too many over here. We need to stop this. So even if you were born here, even though it's always been our law, now it turns out you were in transit. In transit usually means like you're a diplomat's kid or something. And you don't really live there. You're just there very temporarily. They're calling this entire class of people who were born there to have been in transit and they made it retroactive to 1929. So unless you were born before 1929, you're not a citizen. It's very arbitrary and it affected over 200,000 people. We were originally there making a film about sex tourism, but when that happened and our character that we'd been following fell into this class of people, like she's 23 years old, she'd been born there, it's the only country she'd ever known. She's so Dominican. Okay, she has Haitian ancestry, but she is like a Dominican girl. Like the way she speaks, the way she thinks, her music, her culture. And now she's, she's stateless. She's not Haitian. She's not Dominican. The Dominican government, after a lot of people just saying, you know, you can't do this, Amnesty International, different governments came in and said this is a travesty and illegal. And they said, okay, well, we're going to have a residency process where people can apply for residency. They can still stay in the country. But even that's pretty bogus. I mean, it's just been incredibly difficult and it's a ridiculous process. So another really fun one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Rodney Dangerfield in this one as well? Rodney Dangerfield. Another Is he language. in one of my films? No. He could have been in Baggett, I guess, but... He could have been in Baggett. Instead, yeah. you got kind of a George Costanza character. We got George that. Costanza, yeah. yeah. By the way, I do carry a sense of guilt if I do not have my reusable... I see him right over there hanging up. Specifically, Ashland, I don't know how much of the country has been affected by this, but there are no plastic bags in this town anymore. Wow. And not only do they not offer plastic bags in this town, you have to purchase paper bags. Good. I'm sure this is a byproduct of 
you putting the message out there universally that mm -hmm. we have become totally irresponsible. Not become, we've just been. Right. And, and I just came back from seven months in Thailand where their irresponsibility makes ours look like nothing. Right. Not just the little bags, all the to-go cups with the straws. They love their sweet beverages. Right. You can go stand in front of any coffee shop downtown and just watch as people sit for 10 minutes, drink a cup of coffee, and instantly it goes right in the garbage. Right. It doesn't make any Irresponsible. sense. There's no doubt in my mind that if we had a common goal, right. that we were all agree. Just like I think we need agreements here, new agreements between us as people without these little imaginary boundaries. We need to decide what we want to do. What's important. Well, What's... what is important to all of us? Mm -hmm. that these are not issues based on territory or religion. What do we need to do as a species to sustain ourselves? Yeah. If we want to do something, yeah. we can do something. Mm -hmm. And so many of these issues now are, you know, they've just gone way beyond, like they're really about our very survival. Sometimes surprises me that people just really don't want to think about it. It's just not comfortable. Even if you don't want to know specifically about all the details, we don't have to tell you everything, but here's what you can do to join the forces of humanity to eradicate this problem. Yeah. And yet that was kind of our goal with Bagot is we thought, you know, from the very beginning, we our sort of mantra, our word that we kept saying was accessible. We want the film to be accessible. Any school, any individual, any community can can do. And, you know, actually, I just remembered the very first place we played that movie before we were finished with it was here in Ashland. Where'd you play it? At the film festival, the Ashland, what's it called? Ashland, Ashland film Independent Festival. Film Independent Film Festival, film yeah. Festival, yeah. yeah. I didn't you don't even come. know the name of the thing that gave well, you the stuff? Yeah, we won the audience award. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Well, see, I didn't get to come. Oh. Um, Jeb came, mm. who's in the who's in the film, right. who's obviously very fun and funny. And yeah, so How I'm can actually see it now? it's on iTunes, it's on Amazon. So you were born in Jamaica? Yep. How'd that happen? Yep. My dad, Spanish guy, during the Spanish Civil War, his family went to Cuba. And he loved Cuba, grew up there, but then he moved to the U.S. to be a chaperone for his sister, who was going to work for U.S. company as an interpreter. So he spent the last year of high school there and started working for this company. And he went, I've asked him, like, how did he, how he did this? But he went from being the kind of the guy that swept the floor to becoming a manager over a few years. Yeah, I don't know. I guess he's, he was very, uh, you know, kind of with it and had a lot of drive. So they sent him to start a company in Jamaica, and I was born there. And, and what was the company specifically? Shoe company. Shoes. Uh-huh. So when you talk about shoes, I was like, oh, you're talking about shoes. Talking about zapatos here. Zapatos, yeah. Yeah, okay. So then they transferred him to Puerto Rico, which made more sense since he was, obviously, Spanish is his first language. Right. And so I mainly grew up there, and then he went to Dominican Republic when I was almost finished with high school, like a year left of high school, so I'd go to Dominican a lot, and I loved it. I love Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic. You were in Jamaica for how long? Oh, I was only uh, like two and a half or something. Okay. So not too there. many memories. Not Jamaica. too many. We've gone back because, right. you know, if you're down in the Caribbean, it's pretty easy to island hop. Hop around, yeah. Yeah. What was your childhood like? So freaking idyllic and I had no idea. It just seemed so normal, but it was pretty great. It was pretty great. What'd you do as a kid? Just like, you know, beach a lot, obviously, if you live down there. It was really cheap to do fun things like have a horse. So we just had a horse. Why not? Right. You know? Ride horses down on the beach. It'd be the kind of thing that I think would be cost prohibitive if you live in the U.S. Like, really rich girls had horses, which I later learned when I went to college. 
They're like, you had a horse? I was like, well, you paid a hundred bucks for him. But it wasn't one of these like nasty horses no, you see in Mexico like, where you see their ribs. It wasn't like glue like factory horse. Yeah, right. It was like decent. Right. Yeah. So you rode on the beach, slow motion, very yeah, beautiful. Yeah, very slow fun. motion with my yeah. hair flying. Do you have any sisters and brothers? I have an older brother and an older sister. Uh, my sister's, I think, like 17 years older than I am, so she was kind of a parent figure. And my brother is about six years older. He's never lived in the U.S. I mean, he came to the U.S. for a little while, and he just doesn't like the whole thing. Thing, the whole yeah. thing, which yeah. I'm, it's really tough. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, it can be a hard adjustment. I mean, I've lived in Telluride. It's like I've lived in a foreign country all of this time. Right. Um, but he has lived in Dominican Republic for about 30 years, and then he went to Ecuador, and now he's in. Um, he is now in Guatemala. He just moved to Guatemala. What was it like going to school? Well, I went to an American school, which in hindsight, I kind of wish that I hadn't. I guess the reason I went there is my mom taught there. So it was kind of like a free tuition situation. Was that uncomfortable for you to be in the same school where your mother eh, taught? Not so much. I wasn't usually in classes with her. I think I took one government class for her when I was in high school. Well, the first year she was a librarian, so that was kind of different. You'd go right. to the library, and I wanted to be locked in the library all weekend and just read and have no one bother me. Wow. The Twilight Zone episode with Burgess Meredith, ah. where he just wants to be left alone so he can read. There's a dystopic catastrophe, and the whole world is destroyed, except him. Right. He's surrounded by books. He trips. And he breaks his glasses. Oh, he can't see. So All he wants to do is read. Right. Isn't there like a, a college? I think it's called like the Great Books, where literally the college is you just read the Great Books. I don't know anything about that. I, I know it exists. I'm not sure where it is, but I'm like, what a great concept, or what a you know different concept. I'm paying my kids to read now. Yeah, I've been trying that too. And it's not working. Why isn't it working? Do you think? Uh, because he's he says, well, I'm already assigned books in school, and he's not a big reader. He's not that into it. How much did you offer to pay him? Well, I started at five bucks for a book, and then I went up to 20, and it still didn't work. It's okay, I'll just uh, not read Do you the pay book. him allowance? No. You know, he comes to me when he needs money for stuff. You know, I read a bunch. Do you ever read any of those Love and Logic books about parenting? No. So there's one now for teenagers. They really mm. helped me when he was young, and he yeah. was just like off the handle with tantrums and stuff, and, right. and they stopped immediately. I was like, I love this book. How did that happen? Oh, you just like completely ignore them, ignore them, and step over them in the store and do your thing. And yeah, because just... you're not giving them anything to feed off of. Especially like not being embarrassed. You're just like, hey, whatever. You know, people can give me the stink eye. I don't care. Sure. This is a learning experience, and you can take it or leave it. Never raise my voice. Never freak out. I would not let him ruffle my feathers. And it was like all this behavior just ended within a few days. Like it took a couple days for him to realize, okay, this game's not on anymore. Wow, how empowering. So anyway, this book was great. And so now I read one for teenagers and it said, um, don't do allowance. But then this uh, newer one was kind of like, you know, you can do, yeah, allowance. If it's not like they're getting it for the chores that they're doing, because everyone helps out. But it's almost like I'm giving him some money each week that he's with me because he splits his time with his dad. 20 bucks and that money is for him to manage and for him to figure out he's got a debit card he has a bank account how old is he he's almost 15 okay yeah he can uh, go and get pizza with his friends he wants to go to a movie it's like well use your money figure it out because I didn't want him always coming to me and say hey can I have ten dollars I'm going out was well, he friends. asking for more than what you give him not really okay but I just kind of feel like it's a good skill to know how to manage money. Totally. If you blow it all on, on buying more gems for whatever that one of those games is called, and it's right. like, well, I guess you don't have any money to go with your friends for pizza. Right. Or you, you can't buy your friend a birthday present. Or here's a book to read. Yeah. 
Lachlan has a pretty good life. He goes to a great school. He just got back from Costa Rica or the school. They went as their class to Costa Rica Amazing. and did all these hikes and homestays with families. And uh, Sounds like the perfect school. Yeah, he's he's got a good life. And he, you know, he's come out of his shell. He was maybe a little shyer as a kid, but he's really funny and loves his friends. His class, the boys and the girls, they're just best friends. Hang out with each other and they're pretty innocent. At 14, you know, yeah. they're pretty dang innocent. Yeah. I'm, I'm really Which lucky. Is great. Yeah, I don't need them to be growing up too fast at all. My daughter's 16. I tell her, hey, keep playing with dolls on your bed and being a little girl yeah. because at some point and not too far in the distant future, you've got these shitty adult problems. Yeah. All this other stuff, boys and booze and drugs and all these other things that are and in your... And it's so hard, all that stuff. I don't think it's even remotely on her radar. Good. Who likes to say, fuck, Dad, why'd you say that? Or, Dad, <laughs> don't be such a fucking idiot. Or, oh. I, I gave my children permission to swear. Right. Which, at times, I feel like I, I may have made a bit of a mistake to, <laughs> to initiate that license. I think it's good that you gave them the permission to explore because now they know that to pull back. It's kind of like these kids, they... The parents never let them have a drink ever, and they go to college, and they just become total alcoholics. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I was allowed to drink with my family, and that was part of the culture. And so when I went to college, I felt like gone out with my friends a couple times. I'm like, well, that Boone's Farm sucks, or whatever it was, or that rum. So kind of was over it. So you grew up in... Caribbean. Caribbean. Yeah. And... and uh... <laughs> Pretty normal childhood for you. And mm -hmm. when did you start to discover that you wanted to be in the creative field that you're in now? So I did theater growing up and I, I loved it, musicals. And when I went to college, I was a pre-med student and then decided to audition for a play for fun and just absolutely loved it. It was like what I'd done in high school, but at a whole nother level. So I got offered a scholarship from the theater department call the folks and said, hey, I know this may not be the best thing to hear that your daughter is going to go from pre-med track to theater major, but and they were very supportive. <laughs> no, were they? they? Were, no, they were supportive. Sometimes no. I'm just like, why the hell wasn't I a doctor? I mean, I don't know. I This world of the arts is complicated. It's, it's feast or famine. Sometimes I get tired of being poor, but I have a pretty great life. I lamented about it to a colleague of mine. He's like, but Suzanne, man, you went to Mongolia and Russia last year, and you went to the Dominican Republic, and you're going as a guest to these festivals, and you have like a total rock and roll lifestyle. And I was like, you're right. It's, it's a pretty good gig. You're providing public service. Yeah. That's kind of a thing in the U.S. as well, where it is easier to make a living, from what I hear from friends of mine who live in, you know, Sweden or Norway or Denmark, who are filmmakers. There's a lot more government support. And um, my gosh, we have Hollywood in the U.S. Like, it's, it's like the biggest movie-making machine. So why do independent filmmakers here in this country struggle more than in so many other countries? It seems like there should be more support. I do feel super thankful. I, I don't know if I told you, but we got um, a very large grant from ITBS, which is part of the, they get funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Mm -hmm. So the new film I'm working on is fully funded. I'm getting paid, completely getting paid a, a livable wage. And uh, it'll be on PBS, so it's like it already has its home. Fingers crossed that we get a good distributor. It's, it's right. kind of, it's set. 
and that feels good. I'm like, I'm, I'm paying an editor right now in New York who's working on the film. Before I've always edited our films, which is a lovely process, but it's also, God, you know, when you've made the film and you've just been living and breathing it. 2013, we started doing research. So that's been a long time, right. about four years. You know, we weren't on the main story yet. We were doing other stuff. So I'm so happy to have it handed over to someone. And of course, I'm still incredibly involved and I'll be going to New York in July and working with her and she'll be coming to uh, tell her I do work. But um, it feels really nice to know that it's more of a team effort instead of like whipping myself. And, you know, she can look at it with fresh eyes. I already know what's going on and she can kind of be like, well, we, we can't get from point A to point B without some kind of information here. Like, you know the story, but it's also different because if you know the language and you know the story... I'm making these bridges that don't quite exist yet, where she's like, oh no, we need to figure out how to get there. So she's been great, and it's uh, nice to have her on board. And uh, yeah, when I go to New York, Lachlan's doing a science and technology camp there. He's more of a science guy than a book guy. Okay, back to you're now acting and you're in a performance <laughs> the mode. mode. Yes, you're. Yeah. yeah. Well, I focused on performance and directing, so I kind of think that's where I got the, sort of the directing bug. I loved both. I really love performing. It's just being on stage. And I'm not the kind of person that in my private life, I'm not like a big attention seeker. I don't like jump into a room and be like, hello. You know, they say a lot of actors can be a quiet personality, but on stage it kind of comes out. So I kind of feel like that was me. I just really loved making people laugh, helping them have a good time. And uh, so did that and got my degree there and uh, moved to Telluride right after that. And started a theater company there. And it's still going. I did it oh. for about uh, 12, 13 years and then decided to branch out into film and so sort of pass the baton. What made you decide to kind of abandon that? When I ran the theater company, I was, I was acting and directing and producing. And I was the artistic director of the company. So there was a lot of behind the scenes kind of work, writing grants, fundraising, which is as a director in film, it turns out that's a huge part of what you do is fundraise and write grants and and raise money for your film. And I think people don't really realize it. It's like, it can easily be over 50% of your time. I guess the transition from theater to film, I guess while I absolutely love theater, I felt like it was almost always in film instead of in theater. Mm. Like I would visualize a play and oh, that would be great, but I had so many more in film. So I thought, huh, I should check that out. So I went and made a short film that I literally just wrote out in one sitting. Of course, there were no words, so that made it easier. Went and filmed it in the Dominican Republic. I was going there on vacation to visit family. And, you know, it did okay. Played a few festivals and had my first filming experience. It was fun. And then then I had to learn to edit. They had just switched over to... um, not editing anymore with the little reel-to-reel and no one in town had ever done it because it was brand new like it did the, the... but you were like a pioneer in that town of digital yeah, editing yeah. wow that's kind of how i made my living for the next however many years is editing so the radio station got the system and everybody was like well, i don't know how does this work so i just kind of figured it out it was media 100 that was the software that was the software and it was hardware too And uh, before I knew it, I got hired immediately to be an editor for a production company, post-production, doing their editing. And it was like mainly commercial stuff. It paid well. And and I thought, well, I'll just use this as my job and I'll start doing other film. And so I let the theater go. And you miss it? I miss it sometimes. But if I were doing it professionally where I could rehearse during the day and be home with my son at night and with Doug at night, then then I'd be into it. But, you know, to not be there at night because you're in rehearsal... Yeah, I'm not really into that so much anymore. Right. But yeah, sometimes they let me come in and not rehearse so much. 
the new director of the theater, sometimes she'll say, hey, do you want to do this little thing? And I said, sure. But, you know, I, I mainly don't do it just because I am so dang busy trying to keep this film going and... So, how much more time? I'm trying to have at least a rough cut by September so we can be considered for next season's PBS slot. They decide their season in September for mm-hmm. the following year. So, if we're not ready to be at least to consider what show we're going to be on, because the different shows are going to look at it and kind of pitch to say, oh, we, we would like to take it or whatever, like right. POV. Well, I love it if it's on POV or Independent Lens, but there are so many other PBS brands out there, different, um, whatever they call it. I'm still learning all the lingo. Right. Strands. I guess they call it strands. Strands. That's there are nice. many more PBS strands. Because oh. hmm. otherwise I have to wait a whole nother year. It would be coming out in 2019. If it works out for you, is this another channel whereby you could get more work that is paid for. They're so damn democratic. It's not like you become their pet project or their filmmaker and you just automatically, they just go, hey, why don't you do this film? You still have to apply and do the whole shebang. But I'm sure it probably helps once you're in the family. Well, you must have a little bit of leverage once you've made them happy once. Yeah, and if it goes well, hopefully I'd move up a little bit in the stacks of hundreds of thousands of applications. Right. It's like the hardest grant to get in the country. So I feel like it's definitely one of the hardest. Maybe MacArthur used to be considered extremely hard, but now they don't even give grants anymore for films. Mm. It's tough out there. It's not a great environment for raising money for films. If, if you're going the whole grant route. Still, I've been learning the system because I'd love to make a, a narrative film. Like I've got a script and I'm super excited to do it. But it's just that whole daunting thing of having to learn how to raise money now for a narrative film. Don't you live in a place where there's a lot of money? There is a lot of money. Can't yeah. you just leverage yourself in this community where you are known? Maybe. And try some. doing a local Kickstarter or some other kind of campaign? Could. Anyway, yeah, I would love to do... A f- I, like the f- I like the story. I'm still working on it, but I definitely have a script and... Um, I probably could make it pretty low budget, so if, if I don't raise enough money, I'll just make it anyway. So what are you editing in now? We just switched over about a year ago to Premiere Pro. Versus Final Cut? Yeah, we were on Final Cut. I did a little Avid. I've been through a lot of different ones. Why are you using Premiere, Premiere versus Pro? Final Cut now? Once uh, Final Cut went more the consumer route, people felt slighted seen some of those hilarious videos like the Conan O'Brien show did one about making fun of it and the one where they use a scene of Hitler in the bunker just going nuts where they add subtitles like well at least we can uh, bring in our old projects and they're like oh no they they won't come in we we can't actually import them that was great you feel good about what we did I feel like it went really well Hey, Suzanne. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I am living the dream, man. Living the dream. You just got home from a spin class? Is that what you were saying earlier? I did a spin class. It was challenging and fun, and I don't have a bicycle right now, so the next best thing, I guess, is pretending you're riding up hills and all that kind of stuff to loud, booming music. It works. So is this at the gym? Is that where you do that? It's like a spin den or whatever. It's called uh, Cabarete Spinning because I'm in Cabarete. Where's that? It's in the Dominican Republic on the North Shore. 
Cool. So you were my very first Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg podcast episode. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It's what, four years ago coming up on four years next month? Yep, it is four years. You're going to be the first show of 2022. I'm playing an edited version of the show that we did together in 2018. Part two of the show is the follow-up of talking to you now about all the things that have changed since 2018. God, I can't even remember what I was doing in 2018. Well, I could tell you everything because I just finished editing the show, so I know everything you were doing in 2018. Okay. This was just prior to you doing your first draft of Massacre River to present it to PBS. That's right. Obviously, since then, the movie has been released and things have happened with that. Yeah. You were way beyond Bagot and Uranium Drive-In. Yep. Massacre River was your third film. You were doing a story about the sex trade in the Dominican Republic. And then this whole citizenship issue came up and you switched gears and changed the theme of the movie, I guess, or the storyline of the movie following this one young woman who fit into the realm of this new storyline. So what happened with Massacre River? It was on PBS, screened on PBS under the title of Massacre River, The Woman Without a Country. And, you know, for PBS, you have to do exactly, I think it's like 54 minutes and 26 seconds or God knows, something very, very specific to the frame. So it showed on PBS and then did a festival run in different places. Then COVID happened. So things kind of ground a bit to a halt. But just recently, we found out like about a month ago, it's going to show on BBC. So that's exciting. And that's going to happen the first quarter of 22. So coming right up. That was pretty cool. And then it played on French television, but only down in the Caribbean. But I'm pretty excited about the BBC one because BBC World has a really large audience. So that will be that'll be cool. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'm just, you know, trying to get it out to universities, just different ways to show the film. And I guess that part of the distribution has been slow because universities have been in and out. So it's just been a weird time for everyone on the planet. We're all in it together. Yeah, for sure. I thought heavily about Bagot recently, coming to full realization that literally we could be making everything out of this plastic that we haphazardly discard. And I still don't understand why we've made, I would say, no headway, if not even going backwards even further since you've made Bagot. We have not become any more responsible since talking about that four years ago. Yeah, I felt like it made some great strides early on. But that was another thing I think that COVID really impacted because for a while, supermarkets weren't even letting you bring in your reasonable bag. Like that was some sort of tainted material if you brought in your own bag. Ah. And then, you know, everything has gone into way more plastic. There's been a massive increase in the use of plastic because everybody's so freaked out by COVID and by germs and by just anything being tainted. So if you kind of look at plastic use during this whole time, it's it's just really skyrocketed even higher, which is a bummer. Well, I think part of that too is the fact that we're buying everything online. So everything needs to be packaged for shipping. Yeah. And frankly, I don't have a problem with any of the use of plastic. It's just the responsibility on the back end 
of doing something with it. Yeah, right. Plastic is an amazing material that's reusable, but we have not used our intelligence or leveraged any technology or anything to take care of what happens after we open that package. Right. And that's what's mind boggling to me. We can repurpose all of this material in incredible ways, but we have elected to do literally nothing. We've done nothing. Well, yeah. I mean, there has to be some corporate responsibility because it's all like cradle to grave thinking instead of cradle to cradle. Plastic has to have an end life, as you're mentioning, and nobody wants to do that because it's more expensive to think it through. But somebody has to do something with the plastic. You can't keep producing it and just chucking it. Well, that's what I don't understand. This is an opportunity for rich people to make more fucking money, honestly. You can create incredible amounts of industry and business, new business out of this by just taking the material that's already existing and repurposing it. I mean, you literally can make anything out of plastic. Right. Cars, buildings, everything. Yeah. But the virgin plastic is cheaper, and that's the problem. Until virgin plastic is more expensive than the reused plastic because they have to process it and clean it and do all this whole thing to it. It's all about the money for them. They're not like thinking about responsibility and, hey, I made this cheap plastic tchotchke bullshit. I'm going to have to figure out what to do with it at the end. Um, Yeah, we're really far behind in that whole way of thinking. Well, it's killing us because we, the people, are under the impression or have been led to believe that it's our responsibility to recycle it. Like it's even the state's responsibility or others' responsibility to do something with this material when, in fact, we've been bamboozled. It's the manufacturer's responsibility to do something with the products that they make. Right. But we have been led foolishly to believe that it's our fault or it's the government's problem And as long as this cycle continues and we, the people, do not hold those companies accountable, we're going to end up with no food to eat because it's going to be in every orifice of this planet and nothing is going to be safe. Yeah. And I don't understand why there's not some urgency on the part of the people to hold these people accountable and get this thing moving in a direction where we can all leverage and profit from it. Literally, people could be collecting this valuable material and grinding it down to a pulp so it can be put in a machine and something else can be made out of it. Absolutely. I'm perplexed. I am. Yeah. I'm completely fucked up in the head about this. I don't understand at all. Makes no sense to me. Yeah. And like you said, there's just not much protest from the people. I think they've had so much on their mind, especially lately. But there have been some fun movements in Europe where they'll go into a a store, they'll take all the packaging off what they want to buy and they just leave it there like you deal with this of course that's not it's not really the store's fault either but the more you rub against the system up the chain to the manufacturer you know because in the stores say hey why is there all this plastic crap people are just leaving it in the store make your product with less packaging but it's going to take a lot of pushback and that's just not happening yet Well, those stores aren't going to push back. They're just going to dump it out in the back door and that'll be the end of it. Unless 300 million of 350 million people sign a class action lawsuit and hold these companies responsible for the pollution that they're creating, we're just going to go down with the ship. Yeah. Unless we become powerful, 
we're the numbers. If it's a numbers game, if we don't leverage the numbers against the few that are actually creating the shit for us, then we deserve to go down. If we're not willing to fight for our planet in some way, at least democratically through our leveraging even of the legal system, if we're not willing to do anything, then we don't deserve anything to happen. Yep. Yep. Agreed. And that's just life. If we're not willing to say, hey, you know what? We're not going to take this anymore. If we can't throw the TV out the window and say, I'm not going to take this anymore, then tough shit for us. We don't deserve to be here, frankly. If we're not willing to take some global responsibility and stand up to the few people and they're waiting for us to do something, we're just not doing anything. So why should they stop? There's no reason for them to stop doing what they're doing because nobody's telling them not to. I wouldn't either. Why would I stop doing? Why would a child stop doing something other than we talked about, you know, when your son was very young four years ago about this tactic where you'd be in the store and he'd throw a temper tantrum and you just let him be until he recovered from it and say, you can find me over in the melons. <laughs> but we can't do that. These are adults. These are not children who are knowingly doing something for profit at the expense of everybody's life and nobody's telling them not to do it. You can't leave these rich people who are making all this money in the aisle and just say, meet me over in the melons. Mm -hmm. We have to actually stand up as co-responsible adults and demand that some kind of action is taken, that we care enough about ourselves and our children and our grandchildren and the shape of this planet to actually take some kind of action, peaceful action. But I don't think it's going to happen, frankly, because... We're just too lazy and uh, too set in our ways, and, and we're not willing to sacrifice. We're just not willing to sacrifice. Well, like the majority of people, if we're talking about the U.S. now, are so into consumption and being a consumer. You know, like you get these emails every day, perfect stocking stuffers and last-minute Christmas gifts. Like who gives a shit about any of that? It's just like feeding this machine of just more and more and more stuff. And people are just caught in that hamster wheel of just the endless amount of crap. And until people realize that being a citizen of the planet is more important than being a good consumer, then we're pretty hosed. You know, I just, I don't see it. And that's kind of, I'm sure part of the reason you're in Vietnam and part of the reason we're here is it's just way more simplified. It's like stripped down more to the basics. Just eat clean do your thing and don't get caught up in in this chaos of, of just literal crap. Well, it is coming up to being the movie WALL-E, but even here in Vietnam, there is incredible waste of plastic oh, yeah. off the chains. Just like I told you four years ago when I just returned from Thailand, also similarly, just incredible plastic waste. But the people here are sweet and there's no violence and it's easy, and life is simple, and that's a trade-off for me, and I'll take that over the massive insanity of the states and what comes with all that, COVID or no COVID. It's just crazy. Another thing that we talked about at the time was you had a script, and you were interested in making this narrative film. You were concerned about raising funds for it, and you thought you could do a low-budget version of it. Whatever happened with that project? Boy, I'm still working on it. I tell you, when you have a full-time job and you're trying to finish a film, and I became the chair for a two-year term of New Day Films, it's a filmmaker co-op, 
So I've had my plate really very full. The last four years, going into my fifth festival in 2022, I've been the festival director for a documentary film festival called Mountain Film in Telluride, Colorado. It's a great festival. We're about to have the 44th year, so it's been around for a long time. Did you hear what you just said? What did I say? 44th year. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. There you go. 44 shows up everywhere for you, Mark. That's great. 44th year coming right up. Yeah. So doing that, it's a full-time job. So I've kind of had to put a lot of things on the back burner. There's a couple short films as well that I've been wanting to do that I've just sort of been waiting a bit on. I've edited a few projects and directed a few short films kind of on the side to sort of keep my hand in the game. So I'm kind of getting to this place where I need to decide if I'm going to continue being the festival director or if I kind of move on and go back to making films. So it's that dilemma of steady job, health insurance, or just kind of wing it again. What do you want to do? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I think ultimately I'd like to be making films again, but kids in college, so that's a real thing. So there's always those things of having to balance what you want with what you sort of have to help out with as well. Right. But I feel like it's going to work itself out. I've got my few irons in the fire for some more creative jobs that would allow me to make films. So there'll be more to report in our next meeting, I'm sure. Okay. But it must be very exciting to be part of the film festival because at least you get to work with these amazing projects. You get to see films and uh, be part of the process of getting those films shown. Absolutely. It's definitely creative, yeah. The Mountain Film Festival is well known and there's a lot of creative energy right there in Telluride, Colorado. So that part must feed a little bit of your desire. Yeah, it's really great. And a big part of it is filmmaker support. So I watch filmmakers' rough cuts and give them some ideas and notes. We have a grant program, so we grant filmmakers. That feels great to be able to give back to filmmakers as opposed to, you know, I've always been the one writing the grants and trying to raise money. So it feels really good to be able to give money to filmmakers as part of these programs. And then, you know, I get to watch a hell of a lot of films. And that's been really good for me, just learning more about what works and what doesn't work and trying to put your finger on why does this film have all of what seems like the right ingredients? You know, it's got beautiful cinematography. It's got a great score. Like what makes a film great? And of course it gets down to story. Like the story is so important. It's got to really move you and the pacing and the structure and how it's laid out. And I've also come to realize that most films are just too long. You know, I watch probably 150 documentaries per year, sometimes even more. And people get too into their baby, their film, and they just have a hard time with the editing process to get it to be as strong as it could be. Right. And has that helped you too? Because, wow, what a great documentary for you to even make is how to make a documentary. I mean, all the experience <laughs> that you're getting, uh, how, how to tell a story. Yeah. And how valuable would that be to young documentary filmmakers to be able to see, not to get too caught up in their world, but to have uh, more of a structure maybe so they can have the success, make more films instead of getting stuck in one film that doesn't go as far as they'd like to. Yeah, and, and even those decisions like, is this story warrant a short film or a feature film? 
And a lot of times people think it's a feature and it's just not, you know, you just have to really look at it and say the story's going to be as long as it needs to be. When people say, oh, I'm making a 80 minute film, it's like, how would you know already? The story's going to tell you, the film's going to tell you how long it needs to be. Right. Unless you already know what you've got. And that happens in editing, right? I mean, you start putting it together mm-hmm. and uh, the story is going to play out based on beginning, middle and end, like any story and whatever footage that you're leveraging, whatever you're using, you want to be concise about your story right? and not get too off on tangents about things. Is that is that what you're speaking about as far as films being too long? Yeah. There's an editing rule, come into the scene as late as possible and leave as early as possible because people just sort of come in to a scene too early where you're just hanging out there kind of going, okay, oh, now I get the point of the scene partway through. And then when it should be the end of the scene, it's still going on. You're like, hey, you should have cut after that line 30 seconds ago and you're still going. So it's just timing. The timing is so crucial. And I'm not saying by any means that I've completely got it, but I definitely in this journey of being a filmmaker for the last, God, how long has it been? Since about 2000. I've definitely picked up some things along the way and, and also from theater and that story arc and, and making sure you have something to say. The whole three-act structure is so important in documentaries as well. And I think some folks haven't really grasped that. It's like go back and read screenwriting books and learn that you have to really structure it and pace it similarly to a film. Aristotle, his principles of story are still true today. So it's just becoming really familiar with what those are. I would imagine serving as the director for Mountain Film Festival, watching so many films must educate you more, inform you more, give you more ideas about how you would do your next project. Do you feel that there's something, even though you're lacking in the time to actually commit to it, do you have a project in mind? I've been wanting to do sort of a six-part series that's kind of based on the Baggett story because I feel like that film is still holds true today. Obviously, I'm passionate about plastic and looking at plastic and its impact on climate change, which I think not enough people have connected the dots. They're like, oh, plastic, it's not that big a deal. Look at climate change. Yes, but the production of plastic is a big part of climate change. And the more we make, I mean, the billions of tons of plastic that we're putting out there, it's going to have more and more impact on our climate. I find that link between the two interesting. So I've developed a pitch deck for Bagot as a series. I mean, shit, ideally it would be great to have on Netflix, which showed Bagot. But I feel like a limited series is the way to go because people don't seem to have much of an attention span. And if you can kind of make it into 26-minute bite-sized pieces and give it to them as, as a series, I think it could be pretty effective and would get a lot of viewers So that's my hope that that could work out. I wonder if it would help instead of just telling the awful story and it's an awful, horrible thing that we're doing. If there was a way to show solution, because it's easy to show problem, but if you could show these forward thinkers that are actually repurposing this stuff and show people that there is an answer, like if we just start doing these things more on a collective level, that we could actually... Take care of the problem, essentially. Right. But it takes a much bigger effort than the small effort that's peppered throughout the world. We need to have more big corporate onboard participation 
so there can be a bigger impact so the shift can really happen and that the clock is ticking and we don't have an infinite amount of time. We actually need to take action in a big way much quicker than dreaming. We're good at talking, but we're not really good at action. Yeah. And I really tried to do that with Bagot as well, is to not leave people feeling hopeless because then they really don't do anything. But it's not just going to happen on its own. Like It's really going to take concerted effort on the individual level, corporate level, government level. Like It's, it's a full court press. Nobody can be complacent. And just kind of thinking about how to build good citizens as opposed to just uh, good consumers. We've got the consumer thing down, but we really need to build up the citizen part of our brain. And I do see that as kind of a challenge whereby whatever this project is, that it is inspiring people to do the minimum. Yeah. Because if everybody does a little bit, it's a lot. Yeah. But if only a few do a lot, then it's not enough. For sure. So the whole idea is mass participation, getting everybody just to do enough that that effort globally is enough to make that shift. But if you only convince a few people to do something, it's not doing anything. Right. People have to be willing to do a little bit. Yeah. And that works out to be a much bigger effort. Yep. I've been listening to that first show that I did with you and, uh, it was a really good show, and it holds up today, as they say. And like I told you, Baggett made a, a huge impression on me. You know, like Baggett, I've got a bag of bags under my sink, and I try and leverage them and do things with them. I remember when I moved from Ashland to Thailand for seven months, I used all my bags as packing material. I still do that. I use bags as packing material. So I try and get rid of them. No, there's no throwing away. There's no away. Right. There's no place for anything to go. It all stays with us. That's why we have to do something with it. Yeah. And the big one that always makes me just want to cringe is styrofoam. Like to-go containers. I mean, that's part of the reason that I don't go out very much or order food in just because of the frigging styrofoam. So when I go to a restaurant and I don't think I'm going to eat at all, I just bring my own Tupperware. Well, I think that feeling that you're talking about is what people need to feel. People need to feel sick about the repercussions of that consumerism. Yeah. Again, there is no such thing as a way. And whatever world that we're creating through this lack of responsibility is just leaving a shithole for our children and grandchildren. Yeah. There's no doubt that there's particulate in every fish that's caught now, and the ocean is completely polluted, and there's no escaping that. And we have to do something at some point. Or I guess we don't do anything, and we just watch the whole thing take a shit. Yeah. And we just go into the Wally world. Right. I guess that's fine. If we're not willing to do anything, then uh, I think we have to be good with that too, right? Yeah, it's just a bummer because, you know, we both have kids and it just feels like our generation really created this problem, this shit. And, you know, I kind of get frustrated when people just turn to the next generation, the youth, and just say... Well, here you go. It's up to you now. It's like, bullshit. We made the mess. We need to clean it up. We learned that like in kindergarten. We don't make the mess and then make our kids clean it up. That's fucking ridiculous. It's our fucking mess. We have to clean it up. Right. It's just very unfair. Yes, it's true that they're probably going to be the ones that have to shoulder the responsibility. But like you're talking about, we have to be active participants. We can't just like throw up our hands and say, oh, well, good luck. These are like basic tenets of being a good person that we should have learned a hell of a long time ago, but 
you know, greed overtakes, especially on the corporate level. They just want to please the stockholders and it's just friggin' sad. Well, what's even sadder is they don't even realize they can make more money. There's more money to be made in doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little shocked at the short-sightedness of the few that have the ability to go fly off in giant dicks to fool around in space and don't realize that they have the ability to fly around a lot more often if they did the right thing and just help take care of some of these social and environmental problems that could be cleaned up in a relatively short time with a major push, a major effort. It would not take a great deal of time. Why are we not desalinating the ocean so everybody has water. I don't understand what we're doing or more appropriately, what we're not doing. It makes absolutely no sense to me at all. We are so dumb. Yep. We are dumb from the fucking top down. Just dumb. <laughs> yep. So why should our kids give a shit? Why should they when they see what fucking idiots we are? Why should they want to do anything? Why should they be inspired? I don't even see how we could possibly survive our own dumbness. <laughs> yeah, I think that ultimately we won't survive our dumbness. But hey, let's at least make the journey longer. Let's make our dumbness not take us out as soon as it could. Well, there you go. If we don't take care of ourselves as individuals, how could we possibly be expected to take care of the planet? Yeah. Even when we know, there was a while where people just didn't know. Sugar's bad for you? Smoking's bad for you? People just didn't know. But now we know. And we know what we're doing to the planet. We still don't do anything. Right. And I think that's kind of where we stand. That's where it's at. And I actually feel terrible for my children. You and I lived through some of the most creative, amazing times of the human existence. And I'm really grateful for that. So anyway, back in our first show, Lachlan was about to turn 15. Now he's almost 20, right? Yeah, he's in college. He'll be 20 next year. And uh, he's doing well. He's a great kid. He was just down here for a while surfing and, you know, being a cool kid. What's he doing now? What's his plan? He really likes biology and environmental science. So that's exciting. And um, his plan is just doing the college thing. He's in Colorado right now working and making some money before he goes back to school. Yeah. So are you living in three different places now? You have a home in Ashland. You have a place in Telluride. You're in the Dominican Republic. How are you splitting up your time? Well, the place in Ashland, Doug's mom and sister live there. So we go and we visit there. And Telluride, we have a, a very small condo, 480 square feet, but we like it. And when we're all three together, it can be tight. Lachlan lives on the couch, but you know, it works. And then when we're here, we have a little bit more space. It's not a big place, but it is two bedrooms so that we can have him come visit. He and his girlfriend were here for about two weeks and um, friends come and hang out. So we're trying to figure out a way to be here a bit more often, but just having to figure that out with the job. What happened actually to your job because of COVID? How has that shifted how you operate? The first year we were completely shifted to online, like the whole festival was online and we didn't even go in the office at all. We ran the entire festival through Zoom and phone and put the entire program online. And crazily, amazingly, it was in May of 2020 when everybody was kind of in lockdown, I guess, in May. So we had a crazy amount of people attend the festival, more than ever online because they needed things to do and they'd already run to the end of Netflix, I guess. So that year we had a lot of folks. And then this year, back in May, 
we did a hybrid. It was online and in person, but much, much smaller, a lot of outdoor venues, socially distanced. So we weren't able to sell passes. We just sold tickets to individual events, but really small in comparison to our normal festival. And then this year, we're planning on a full festival. God knows what's going to happen. What are they? There's some saying about fools and plans. Right. Which is kind of how I'm feeling right now. Who knows what will happen with this year, but we were thinking it would be back to a, a full festival. Cross your fingers, Omicron. Yeah. Or whatever the hell it's called. We'll see, Omicron, yeah. 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 Omicron has entered the building. You're escaping winter now by being in the Dominican Republic. And how long are you going to be there? February 10th, we'll head back to Colorado, back to the office. The office is open for now, but for some reason, the office doesn't reopen. We'll just keep working down here. Well, you and Doug and Juno can just go play on the beach and you can do everything virtually and uh, you don't need to be any place specifically. You might as well be comfortable and enjoy your life as it is. Yeah. The nice thing is that everything's outside, which you know, it's because it's not cold. You're doing everything outside. You're not going inside for anything. Plus, this is one of the kiteboarding capitals of the world. So a big breeze comes up every day, kind of like clockwork around one o'clock. So when you're outside, you really feel safe because it's just lots of wind and very pleasant. What's the average daily temperatures? Probably 82, something like that. That's so perfect. Yeah, it's really nice. How far are you from the beach? Two to three minute walk, but we don't have to cross any roads, which is nice. It's just like a little trail. That's brilliant. Yeah, don't mind it. Do you guys have any Christmas plans? You got a couple days. We're in Christmas and then we're in the next year, man. Yeah, we're keeping it light. No presents. We're just doing our thing, not working. I have a couple good books lined up. Then we're going to go up to the mountains a few days after Christmas to spend a week checking out another part of the island. There's amazing mountains here and rivers, hiking. Awesome. You're welcome anytime. It looks like a really wonderful place. Well, you're going to be the first show of 2022, show number 103. Oh my gosh. 103 after being show number one four years ago. So wow, I'm super stoked that we got to reconnect and uh, talk about this and that and kind of start the year off together. Yay. Thanks so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It's really been an amazing ride over the past four years. My life has gone in all kinds of different directions. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful for every millisecond that I get to be here and all the extraordinary, indescribable experiences that I've been able to have. I want to thank Suzanne for coming on the show again in this fourth year. Uh, it was great to catch up with her. I'm super happy for her, and I hope she does do a follow-up to her project, Bagot. You can lead a person to logic, but you cannot make them think. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. I want to thank you for listening to the show. As always, you can find the show on Apple, Amazon, CastBox, Spotify, and Stitcher. Again, thanks so much for listening to the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, take care of yourself. Much love. Bye-bye.
Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. You gotta focus on yourself, on your faith, on your dreams, on your mind, on your health, yeah. You gotta work, never tell, keep your head down, find what you love and excel, yeah. Push and pull and repel any hate, go create what you want, feel compelled, yeah. And once you finally get a taste of the race, you'll never look back once you felt that. Don't let somebody take your time and your worth, just focus on yourself first. Don't let somebody take your time and your worth, just focus on yourself first. Don't let somebody take your time and your worth, just focus on yourself first. Don't let somebody take your time and your worth, just focus on yourself first. On the inside, everybody is the same. I am Citizen 44.